For our call to worship this morning, I want to read from the book of Hebrews. I mean, you'll see how this ties into our uh, songs and how this ties into the message this morning. I want to try to put everything kind of together in a, in a theme. I'll always try to do this. Oftentimes it doesn't work. Um, so I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10. And um, we are having some little snap crackly sound issues. Um, so we'll try to deal with that. Hopefully maybe our children can uh, make some noise where we won't hear that as much. <laughs> um, Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't know, the book of Hebrews is all about displaying how Jesus supersedes all of these different things of the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the temple, than, the, than all of the Old Testament worship. He's the great high priest. He's, he's all of these things. He's the greatest sacrifice. And in chapter 10 it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law, that is the the Old Testament ceremonial worship system, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all those things. They had to do it every year, all the time. It couldn't do anything for anybody. That's why they had to keep on doing it. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? A great argument against the... uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of uh, the Mass and the different things that they have to do. The Mass especially, they say, is a sacrifice, a re-sacrificing of the, the body of Christ over and over and over because the one, the one sacrifice on the cross was just not enough. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, Through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The blood of Jesus has made it possible for us to go into the presence of God and worship. He made one sacrifice, it's done, it's completed, and now 
Anytime we want, we can come into the presence of God and worship. And, and on, on the Lord's Day, we come and we worship as a body. And so we're going to move into our time of worship now um, with a time of prayer. And then we're going to sing. We'll take your Bible and open it to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read a passage of Scripture from which that last song that we just sung was taken. Ephesians chapter 1. And hopefully, after we blaze through this passage, um, the next time we do that song, um, it'll be a lot more exciting. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. You may have a seat. The gospel, by definition, is a story. The gospel is news. The gospel is not something that you can live any more than you can live out a car wreck that happened yesterday or the, the, the news stories that you see on TV. And the reason that needs to be clarified is because oftentimes in our culture, buzz phrase and buzzwords are things like, we need to live the gospel. People need to see the gospel. That's, you can't do that. We can paint pictures of the central tenets of the gospel with our lifestyle, with our marriage, um, with, with various things, but we can't live the gospel. The gospel is a story. The gospel, by nef- definition, is news. It's a message. It's a message to be told. It's a message to be proclaimed, to be heralded to the nations, to be preached. By definition, the word gospel. Good tidings, good news. The gospel is also the underlying motivational factor in all that we do as believers and as the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, because the gospel is true, it shapes our living, it shapes our family life, it shapes our work life, it shapes our church life. Because it's true. If we're going to speak or preach or proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if the gospel is going to shape all of those areas that I named, if the gospel is going to shape the church as we gather and as we minister and as we go out on mission, then it's obvious we have to know the gospel. We have got to know it forwards, backwards, from the middle to the end, from the middle to the beginning. That way when we encounter people 
We can listen to where they are in life. We can pinpoint where they are, where their sin might fit into a gospel narrative, a gospel issue, and then we can help them to see from where they are to Christ. See how the gospel will apply to their situation. So we have to know it over and over and over. We need to know the gospel and tell ourselves the gospel and hear the gospel over and over. And and I said last week, I say over and over, a simple way to remember the gospel is under four headings. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Four headings. All of the gospel narrative will fit under those four headings. I think we have a track back there that actually has three. Uh, Ruin, redemption, regeneration. I think those are three R's. Okay, so that's even less. We're looking at these four. And for the past six weeks, we've been looking at God's design for us as human beings, men, women, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, as outlined under those four headings. We've We've only looked at two. And we won't look at the last one, but we looked at just two of them, creation and fall. So in creation, pre-fall, pre-sin, we're just looking at God's design. We looked at God's design for human beings. He does have a design. He does have a a, a layout. He does have a standard. He does have an expectation. We looked at God's design for males, men. We looked at God's design for females, women. We looked at God's design for marriage, All pre-fall, apart from sin, we got to see God's perfect design. And then, for the last two weeks, we moved over to the fall. Sin enters the picture and messes up everything. It ruins everything. So we looked at the fall of the man and how that affects men. And, And ultimately, the fall of Adam affects all of humanity And then we looked at the fall of of the woman the first week, the fall of the woman, and we saw how her sin affects women within the fall. So we've looked at creation, we've looked at fall, now we're going to look at redemption. That is where we go now. So the basic premise of redemption is this. God created humanity with a specific design and according to a specific perfect pattern. But in the fall, humanity cast aside that perfect design. We cast off the glory of God in His design. We pursue our own autonomous freedom. We look for our own authority out from under the rule and the reign of our king. We want to be a king unto ourselves. And so because of Adam's sin, we are all, by nature now, sinful. That's a, that's, that's a main point that we need to understand from, from last week. By nature, we are sinful. This is how I explain it to Case. Ducks swim in the water. Fish swim in the water. I guess fish is a better one. Fish swim in the water. Monkeys climb in trees. Snakes slither through the grass. And people sin. That's what we do. It's our nature. We are imputed the guilt of Adam's sin. When he sinned in that moment, the guilt of his sin went to all of his posterity, all who would come after him, all of his race. He was our federal head. And so when he sinned, we fell with him. But that doesn't change the pattern. That doesn't change God's design. Our sinfulness does not change the God after whose image we are formed. It doesn't change the design that we are to follow. God didn't fall, we fell. God didn't sin, we sin. God hasn't changed, we've changed. His standard never moves, it never fluctuates. It was us. And so now, when we look at redemption, the question is this. What has God done in order to set right what man has sought to destroy? That's what we call redemption. What has God done to set right what man has sought to destroy. And, and we need to think of redemption in two ways. What has God done? And then how shall we now live in light of what God has done? And that's, that's kind of where our, our series comes in is how shall we live? What, what, what do we do as men, women, 
husbands, wives, boys, girls, mothers, fathers, what do we do now that we were sinful by nature, but we know God has a design, so how shall we now live? And we're going to be spending some time in Ephesians for our study on husbands and and different things, fathers. And you'll remember when we began, we started with Ephesians. We looked at kind of the outline of the book of Ephesians. And we saw how the book of Ephesians is laid out in two perfect halves. The first three chapters are full of indicatives. He's just explaining who we once were and who we are. And then the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, begin with a therefore... Brothers, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, live a certain way. And the the point that Paul makes in this perfectly symmetrical book is the way that we live is motivated by what God has done. Right living should be motivated by right belief. It's not the reverse. It's, It's not the other way around. The other way around would be works righteousness. The other way around would be every other world religion. This is the one thing that makes Christianity different than every religion in the world. And so in this series, as I'm teaching, I I was preparing last week, and just so you know, I've added a week to the series, which I kind of thought may happen. Um, If I go straight into the imperatives and we just start looking at, here's how to be a husband, here's how to be a wife, here's how to be a mother, here's how to be a father... I'm afraid we might be under the impression, now I know you guys are smart, you're not ignorant, but people might be under the impression that to live like a Christian makes you a Christian. And that's false. That, that's not so. That, that we, can't, we can't think that way. And I want to do everything in my power to let you know that that's not so. I met a waitress at um, Giovanni's. She said that she had been attending a local Baptist church in the area. She said her husband was a Roman Catholic, but he had started attending church with her at this Baptist church. And he really was not that surprised because turns out, after all, we're not that much different. And I said, well, yeah, we are. And, and she walked away. <laughs> I can't... If there were a, a Roman Catholic or a Hindu or a, a Muslim in here, I want them to know that what we believe is different than every other world religion. I want to make it clear every time I preach that this is a a Christian church, not just just a a vague, positive, deist church. So this is what I want you to see today. This is the main point today. It's simple. There's not going to be a whole lot of jabbing application like we've seen over the past several weeks. This will be kind of a rest week. If you are a born-again Christian, if you are the product of redemption, it is not because of something that you have done to get yourself into that position. Redemption is a work God has done. And we are the fruit, we're the product of redemption. And after we understand redemption, we understand what God has done Then we say, how shall we now live? Then we can move forward in light of redemption. That's why the book of Ephesians is chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and not 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3. You begin with redemption. You begin with what God has done, who you were and who you are now. Then you move into now live like a believer. If you are unconverted, There's no use in me trying to explain how to be a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly mother or a godly father. It won't work. It it just won't work. I can preach until I'm blue in the face and it just won't work. Either you're going to be rebelliously unwilling to obey or you'll want to really bad and you'll try really hard and it still just won't work. You have to understand redemption. You have to be born again, redeemed by God before any of the uh, moral changes are actually beneficial. So let's look at this, these verses. Now this is a big chunk of Scripture for us. Um, when you study expository preaching, over and over and over you hear this, expository preaching is not a running commentary. 
You know, we, we believe very strongly in preaching verse by verse by verse. And a lot of people take that just to mean read the verse, give a comment, read the verse, give a comment, read the verse, give a comment. So, th- th- so you're taught expository preaching is not a running commentary where you just comment through the passage and then you close the word of prayer. I'm hoping that today doesn't come across as a running commentary. Um, we're going to have to plow through this really quickly. The point is I want you to see what God has done. Verse 3. You, you can cut that off, Jeremy, if it's being aggravating. I got it up here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. Paul begins after the salutation of this letter with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is praise. The word blessed, we we get our word eulogy from this word. It's it's just saying something good about somebody. Typically we do it at a funeral, so it's, it's a eulogy. He's praising God. From this point, we're going to study deep doctrines. We're going to study, study heavy stuff. We're going to study highly controversial doctrine, debated doctrines. And then, in the coming weeks, we're going to say, this is how you live now, that these things are true. But as we study these things, if our first response is, okay, how do I live? How do I live? How do I live? Okay, tell me what to do. How do I live? We've missed it. If our first response is, oh, you wait till I see such and such. Oh, I got one for them now. We've missed it. If we, if, we, if we don't first begin with praise and worship, we've missed it. The point of these things is praise. We understand what God has done and we are immediately thrust onto our faces before God because of what He's done and we praise Him. We worship Him. That has to be our number one priority. And and it's a good thing that He begins with praise. There's praise in the middle. He ends with praise. We're going to see that over and over. First, middle, and last, it's worship, worship, worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, God, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. There are Christians who are filthy rich. they got money just coming out of their eyeballs. They're so rich. And they're Christians. They, they love the Lord. They've been redeemed. And they're rich. They, they, they do exist. Now, we don't like to think about that. We're like, oh, no, Christians are poor. They've got to be poor. No, there are wealthy Christians. And there are, there, and there are poor Christians. Around the world, Christians who are scraping to get by. they got nothing. There are Christians who are healthy. Bodies like an ox. They work out. They exercise. They never get sick. They're healthy. And there are Christians whose bodies just get... Cancer, and then it goes away, and cancer, and it goes away, and cancer, and it goes away over and over and over until finally we put them in the ground because they're, they're just, it's just like they're, they're a lemon. There's something wrong with their body, but they were Christians. There are Christians who every business venture they put their hand on, it just prospers. It's just like, what? They got, they got the golden touch, you know, like King Midas. Just everything is just, my goodness. And then there are other Christians, they can't keep a job. They try to work. It just—it's just nothing they do is prosperous. They're just—they're never going to get above this bar ever, no matter how hard they try. It's not in the cards. But there is one place where every Christian is the same across the board. If you are a Christian, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing we can possibly imagine in Christ. Spiritual blessings, not financial blessings, not physical blessings, not entrepreneurial blessings. We may have those, but we may not. Those are not promised. We've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, every transcendent blessing, every blessing that whether it's on earth or whether it's in heaven, it's still a blessing. Every blessing we can ever imagine has already been given to us. He says he blessed us 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In Christ. So if you want spiritual blessings, God says, here's my son. Whenever God slid Jesus across the table, whenever he put forth his son as a propitiation, he gave us every spiritual blessing blessing we could ever imagine and ever desire and ever need. So when it comes to spiritual things, or and we could also throw in there temporal, physical, finite, earthly things, if Christ is not the pinnacle, if he's not number one of, of all the blessings, if he's not the supreme joy and delight, then you're probably not a Christian. Because God has given us, Paul speaking, writing to the church in Ephesus or the church in this area, including himself, us Christians, He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So when he gave us Christ, we got everything. So if you're moping around wondering and lacking, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. Well, yeah, I've got Christ, but you've missed the point. Because he's given us everything in Christ. And so he says he's given us every spiritual blessing. Now he's going to list some of these blessings. Verse 4, even as, or so here's how he's blessed us. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So there's spiritual blessing number one. He chose us. He selected us. He, he picked us. He chose us in Him. That is, in Christ. Remember last week, we, we remember the terminology, in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. So there are two options. There are two races and they're not black and white. They're in Adam, the human race, and they're in Christ, the spiritual, heavenly, godly race. This says He chose us in Christ, to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. The foundation is the starting point. That's where you start. That's the bottom. So the foundation of the world would be the beginning of the world. And so if He chose us before the beginning of the world, that means there was no world yet. So this is eternity past. In eternity past, God chose us in Christ. Now listen, it doesn't get any plainer than that. You have to take the Bible and make a pretzel out of it and just reject the words that are here to deny the fact that God chose His people before the foundation of the world. It's just, just read it and it says it. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and then here's a purpose for which He chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us to be holy. That is, set apart. So you got the mass of humanity, all of the people, but He chose us to be holy, to be different from those, to be set apart. And blameless, that is, Righteous, without sin, cleansed. Out of all of humanity, He picked us to be set apart over here to the side, righteous and without sin. Now remember, in Adam, we're not holy and blameless. We are by nature sinful. Helplessly sinful. And, and we can't do anything about it. We're born that way. We're born not holy, we're born not blameless, blameful. We, 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 we need all of the blame. It's all on us. So when it says that He chose us, that we should be holy and blameless, He's actually choosing something, an action to come upon Himself where He's going to make us holy and blameless. Does, does that make sense? We're, we're not just holy and blameless on our own. We're by nature in Adam. So when he says you're going to be holy and blameless, what he's doing is adopting for himself a job. I have decided to make this people holy and blameless because we're not holy and blameless on our own. How does this happen? Verse 5. I don't know why they started verse 5 where they did. I'm going to read in love at the end of verse 4. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is how He's going to make us holy and blameless. First of all, in love. 
You start talking about God's choosing, God's election, God's predestination. People go off the deep end and they say, oh, well, God just played some sort of uh, haphazard game of duck, duck, damn in eternity past where He just picked here and picked there and it has nothing to do with anything. It's just the, the luck of the draw. No, sir. That's anti-Bible. What the Bible says is in love He predestined us. This is flowing out of His love for us. Love which seeks the greatest good despite whatever may come to yourself. Despite the cost to yourself. In love, flowing out of His love, He predestined us for adoption. The dreaded P word. We've got to know our definitions. Because some people say, well, that, that word doesn't mean what, what you think it means. So what does it mean? In the Greek, it's made up of two different words. Pro, meaning before, and orizo, which means to define or to limit or to set a boundary. You could probably hear in the word orizo, we get our word horizon from that. That's the, the farthest limit you can see where it stops. Now this is... The definition of predestined. The boundary, the limit, the end was set, determined beforehand. This is contrary to any concept where God looked down the halls of time and He saw what we would do. He saw the outcome and then He just agreed with it. No, He determined it. It says He predestined. It's a verb. He did it. He was the one destining it beforehand. And He predestined, not a concept, not an idea, us. A people. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Here's the purpose of the predestination. Here's the horizon that God set. Here's the limit. Those will be my sons. They're in Adam. They will be my sons. Child placement. I'm going to take them out of the family that they are in and I will put them into my family. I will make them co-heirs with my own son. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And how is He going to do this? He predestined us as adoption or for adoption as, <clears throat> as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be the mechanism by which we are adopted. According to the purpose of His will. Purpose means pleasure or delight. Will means your desire. So, in other words, we can read it like this. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ because that's what He wanted to do. Because it delighted Him. Because it was His pleasure to do so. It's not based on you. It's not based on how smart you are. It's not based on something He foresaw in you. It's based on what He decided to do. It depends not on Him who wills, or on Him who works, runs, exerts force, but on God who has mercy. But to all who did receive Him, who believed on His name, He gave the power, the right, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. It was God's delight and His pleasure to adopt us. This is the spiritual blessing. He chose us that we would be set apart and sinless and righteous. Out of His love, He determined beforehand that we would be taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. He would do this through the mechanism of Jesus Christ because it made Him happy. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. We started with praise. Here in the middle we have Praise. This is the ultimate goal. Praise. Worship. The praise of His glorious grace. It's all of grace. Free, unmerited favor to those who deserve punishment and wrath. 
His grace is glorious. His grace shines in the darkness. We should praise His attributes. Praise His grace when we understand what He's done for us and to us. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The subject is still His grace. So the grace is that with which He has blessed us. So He's given us grace in the Beloved. And the Beloved is Jesus, His Son. God the Father said at Jesus' baptism, this is my Beloved Son. This is the same concept that we saw in verse 3. He's blessed us in Christ. Here He's given us grace in Christ. Free grace flows to us as a blessing in the person of Jesus Christ leading us to worship and praise the God of this grace who would give us this. When we realize that in redemption we have been given this beautiful Savior, this grace. When we realize that, our hearts and our minds should be should be turned. Our focus is turned. Our affections are stirred towards God. And we begin to see the glow of His glorious grace flowing to us in glimmering radiance. And then we praise Him to the praise of His glorious grace. And it comes to us in the Beloved, in Jesus. It comes to us in Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of Of the grace of God. So when we speak of grace, we're not talking about some impersonal force, some concept, some idea. We are speaking of the beloved Son of God. That's what we mean when we say grace. We mean Jesus. And we should be able to say, I cannot but hear of grace and think of my Savior. See, usually when we hear grace, our first thought is what we've been released from. What we've been saved from rather than what we've been saved to. The person that it took to save us from where we were. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Then verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Him, that's, that's Jesus. Now we're talking about the Son in Jesus. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, all that Jesus has, has done, all that He is from His incarnation to His life, to his, his death, to His resurrection, to His ascension, to His intercession on our behalf as our high priest, all that Christ is in Him, we have redemption. We, His people. We are those who God chose to be holy and blameless, that He predestined for adoption as sons, The mechanism for that adoption would be Jesus. Now we get to see where Jesus comes into the picture. This is how the adoption takes place. We have redemption. And this is the word of the day. Redemption. We're learning about redemption. When we understand redemption, then we can understand how to live in light of redemption. And to be redeemed means to be bought out of slavery, out of bondage. You're a slave. You're held captive. There's a price. If you want this slave, you pay this much. And redemption means that price has been paid to buy you out. So the question then is, why do we need redemption? Well, remember, in Adam, all died. When Adam sinned, we all incurred the guilt of his sin. We receive a sin nature. Okay, then we're then we're we grow and we incur the guilt of our actual sins on top of that. So we just sin and sin and sin. We live a lifestyle of sin. We are deserving of the wrath of God to be punished for our sins. We're slaves to sin. We can't stop sinning, but we're also slaves destined to suffer under the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. The payment, the paycheck for our sin. We sin our whole lives. We clock out at the end of our life. We cash it in. What have we earned? We've earned death, punishment. And redemption 
means that we would be purchased out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to this death and punishment, released from these chains. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. We have this redemption. We have this purchase out of slavery through His blood. In the Bible, we read in the Old Testament, the life of a person or life of a, a thing is in the blood. The blood means the life. When the blood is in it, you're living. When the blood comes out, you're dead. And the wages of sin is death. God owes us death. We deserve death. Jesus died the death that we deserved. We were in the house of bondage. Unable to free ourselves. Helplessly lost in Adam. Owing a debt we could not pay. And Christ paid the debt. Jesus' life was the price paid for our redemption. He purchased His people. And redemption consists of, it says, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is what redemption is. This is what it consists of. See, the ultimate underlying problem with us requiring redemption is that we have trespasses. We have sins on our account. And those sins we're enslaved to, we can't stop sinning, and they require us to be punished by death. We've accrued this debt to ourselves. So in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the debt that we accrued because of our inherited guilt from Adam as well as the debt we accrued from our actual sins, was paid to God the Father, the Son absorbing the wrath of the Father, which was the debt we accrued for ourselves, thus redeeming us from the bondage of sin and redeeming us out from under the wrath of God. So get this. People say, are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from God. God sent His Son to save us from himself, from his own wrath. Why would he do this? Why would God say, if you sin, Adam, you die? Adam sins. His whole race is plummeted into sin. They all get death. But I'm going to send my son to rescue them from the death that I said they were going to receive. The verse continues, according to the riches of his grace. Not out of His grace. According to the riches of His grace. In relation to the riches. In proportion to the riches. The forgiveness that we have received is in correspondence to the bottomless treasure vault of the matchless grace of God. Free, unmerited grace to undeserving sinners. It's just free. Why would God do this? It's grace. In love. Verse 8, still speaking of the grace now. The grace is the subject. The grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight. So He doesn't just give us grace. He lavishes grace. Literally, He abounded on us. He abundanced on us. He over and above on us. He just poured it, grace upon grace. He didn't just say, well, here's what it requires, so I guess I'll give the bare minimum of my grace. He lavished grace upon grace, pressed down, shaken together, and heaping over grace upon grace. That's where it comes from. He lavished this grace in Christ, and it also comes, us, comes to us in wisdom and insight. This is necessary. Wisdom and insight. Wisdom is understanding and knowledge. Insight is, is the practicalities of it, the street smarts of it, how to apply the wisdom and the knowledge. Without this, we're still helplessly lost in Adam. We would know nothing if God does not give us the wisdom and the insight. See, we are still functional creatures with a will, with a desire, with affections. We have to be given the ability to even make the right choice, to even think properly, to discern right from wrong. He gives us that wisdom and that insight. Because by nature, we are blinded by sin. 
We, are, have our, we have our minds darkened. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. We're unable to discern spiritual things. And so he gives us wisdom and insight. And he does this, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Because of the wisdom he gives and the insight he gives, we can know God's will. This mysterious will. Up until this point, it had been hidden. To the lost world, it is still hidden, this gospel truth. They don't, they don't understand it. They don't get it. You can't go somewhere and do good deeds and show Jesus to the world. They don't see Jesus. We can't, we, we, people say all the time, um, you've you got to go and go somewhere and do something for somebody because you might be the only Jesus they see today. They can't see Jesus. They're blind to it. All they see is a person doing a moral deed. You might as well be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Roman Catholic or a Christian. It doesn't matter because they cannot discern spiritual truth until the gospel opens their minds to see that's Jesus. They can't see it. They're blinded. God has to come and give us wisdom and insight to make known to us this mystery according to His purpose. This hidden will. It always has been God's plan. It's always been His pleasure, His desire. It's always been plan A from the beginning. There's no plan B. There's no parenthesis that we call the church. It's always been the goal. And now He makes it known to His people that the gospel, this purpose which He set forth in Christ, when Christ comes, that's when we see it. This is what it was all about. It's been set forth in Christ. Christ comes. And when Christ comes, God's mysterious hidden will is set forth and made known. This is what it was all preparing for. This is what it was all getting us ready for. It's all come down to this. The life, the death, the resurrection, the work of Jesus. And that's what verse 10 says. The ultimate summation of this doctrine is verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The fullness of time means when the time was right, when the, when the mystery was ended, when the pre-Messianic age was over, when God was ready, He sent His Son. And it culminates in Jesus. There's no more to seek. We're not looking for another temple. We're not looking for more sacrifices. We're not looking for another land. We have Jesus. It all culminates in Christ because God is going to unite all things in heaven and earth in Him. In the coming of Christ, the eternal plan of God hidden from the ages is made known. And it fully emerges. It comes together. That's why Jesus could say, you search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of Me. That's why Luke could say, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That's why Paul could say, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. It's all about Jesus. It all leads us and builds up to the crescendo of Christ. All of human history, all that God has been doing, even back to the Garden of Eden that we studied, finds its culmination in the person and the work of Christ securing the redemption of His people through His shed blood. The people whom God chose to be holy and blameless. The people who God predestined to be adopted as sons. Verse 11 and 12. In Him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope might be to the praise of His glory. Here he restates some other factors that we've already studied. Predestination, the will of the Father, to the praise of His glory. But here he introduces another spiritual blessing. Inheritance. Because we are in Christ and we're co-heirs with Christ, we are automatically assumed to be the recipients of some blessings. I'm going to get what my dad has when he dies. Case is going to get what I have when I die. That's an inheritance. It's just assumed because he's my son. 
That's the way it works. We are now sons of God. Therefore, it is assumed we now have an inheritance still to come awaiting us. Coming later, future blessings. We have an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. He predestined us. Now He works everything to ensure that His predestined plan comes to pass exactly like He designed it to take place. We're not deists where God just wound the clock and then stepped back and said, alright, let's hope for the best. Let's just hope that they make the right decision. You know, they're, they're, they're moral creatures. We just got to let them, just let them make a choice. I don't want puppets now. No, he says, I'm going to work these people and make my people and I'm going to preserve my people that we might be to the praise of his glory. Again, to the praise of his glory. The purpose is the praise of his glory. And now it is that we might be the bride, the church, the people come together and we exist to the praise of His glory. So when we come into the fullness of the, the bride of Christ, the end of time, when the new Jerusalem, the church, comes down out of heaven, all of creation will, as it were, rise and praise the glory of God for the redemption of us. That's why Romans 8 says all of creation groans in eager longing waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. It's all waiting for us. The trees and the clouds and the earth, and the, the galaxies, they're waiting for us, the church, to be revealed so that we might be to the praise of His glory. 13 and 14. Almost done. In Him, that's Christ, you... Also, here's one last spiritual blessing. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Notice the sequence there. You heard the truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation and believed. You heard the good news of your salvation. Not... You heard, you heard the good news about something that would happen and then you tried to figure out, man, how can I make that about me? How can I activate that for myself? It's not what he says. He said, you heard what God did for you and you believed. The gospel came and in, that, in, in its coming, you just said, I believe it. It's, it's for me. It's about me. You heard the good news of what God had done in Christ for sinners and you believed. You don't do anything to activate your salvation, to, to, to get your salvation transferred over into your name. You believe. Hearing the gospel actuated belief in the gospel. That's why Paul can say, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. When it comes, that's what makes it happen. God effects. He creates what He commands. He creates the belief. And when that happened, the spiritual blessing is you receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is big. This is what's going to launch us into next week. You receive the Holy Spirit. You received God. You received the third person of the Trinity inside you. As a seal. As a stamp of, of authority. And ownership. As a, a guarantee. A down payment. A, a promise that the transaction will be completed in the future, to the praise of His glory. The third person of the Trinity. You get that. That's, the, that's another spiritual blessing. You get God in you. The Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you if you are a believer. Ezekiel 36, He tells us, I will put My Spirit within you and I will cause you to Walk in my statutes and obey my commands. So the gracious spiritual blessing of the Holy Spirit is the empowerment to live our lives according to the commands of God. We don't obey in order to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't even believe in order to receive the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit in us, regenerating us, that causes us to believe, that gives us the faith, that makes us capable of obedience.
Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I would think faith would be something that pleases God. We can't do that without faith. He has to start it. The Holy Spirit comes and gives us this ability. Because in Adam, we are unable to obey. So this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is, this is redemption. This is what God has done. The work began in eternity past. The work is God's doing. It is outside of us until we get to the work of the Holy Spirit. It has to be, be, outside, be outside of us because in Adam all died. We're helplessly lost. That's what we learned last week. We can't do anything about it. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Cannot. That's ability. You don't have the ability to please God. Regeneration of the soul is a miraculous work of God and cannot be affected by any work of man. All we do is preach the gospel over and over and over and over. And when God pleases, He acts. And notice also that this is a Trinitarian work. This is important. What we believe about salvation keeps the Trinity in unity. What others believe about salvation fractures the Trinity. We'll talk about this in our small groups a little more in depth. In verses 3 through 6, we see that the Father chooses His elect from before the foundation of the world. In verses 7 through 13a, the Son comes into eternity and redeems those people through His own blood. And then in verses 13b through 14, the Spirit applies and seals those people through the preaching of the gospel until Christ returns. The Godhead works in unison to secure our redemption. So if you are a Christian, if you are converted, this is how it happened. That's what this teaches. That's what Paul is doing here. He's just explaining what happened to these Christians. It wasn't that you just decided one day, you know what, I think I'll be a Christian. It's what happened to you. You don't just decide, I think I will change my nature. I think I will be something other than what I was born to be. God does this. And these are the benefits that you have received. You've not earned them. God has given them freely. And this is who you are now, an adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ. Over in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are a product of the first resurrection. We are now spiritually ruling and reigning with Christ in heavenly places right now. And the inheritance is ours. Future blessings. We've got something to look forward to. Something, the down payment has been placed. The Holy Spirit's been given. He will return to seal it and finish the transaction. That's redemption. So as we move forward, we have to understand that. And, and this is what must be true of us if we're going to see any lasting change take place in our roles as men and women, as husbands and wives, as families, as a church. Without this, there's no use in us trying to be good hubbies and, and wifeys and good mommies and daddies and boys and girls. There's no use. It's all worthless. Now, God uses that to restrain evil as an act of common grace, but in eternity, it's worthless. It means nothing for your soul. Now, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably many others, all had one thing in common. And this is what made their preaching great, is that they never, ever assumed that the people under their voices were converted. Ever. We can't see hearts. We don't know. And I don't want to make that assumption either. We've talked about predestination. We've talked about election. Those, that's heavy stuff. Um, I mean, we could spend months in this chapter. And a question that often comes up when you talk about this stuff is, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? How do I know if God predestined me to adoption as son? So here's the test. Do you believe? 
That's a test. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you are helplessly lost without a Savior? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God who died in the place of sinners? Do you believe that His blood has paid the redemption price for your sins? Is the blood of Jesus your only hope? Or are you thinking there's that, but then there's this other stuff? The once for all sacrifice for Jesus is our only hope for salvation. And if we add anything on top of that, we are outside the Christian faith. We've drifted off the road. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you are trusting in the God-man who died in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of your trespasses, then friend, you are one of God's elect. That's how you know. If not, if you're hoping in your good works, if you're hoping, well, I'm just going to clean up my act and, and then I'll get right. If you're hoping to effect the necessary changes so that then God will then accept you, that's not it. That's unchristian. Turn from yourself. Turn, run, tuck your tail and run from your own merits. And cast yourself on Jesus. And He will save you. And then you can say, I'm one of those. Let's pray.